Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshensky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. Hey, pelvic people, welcome back. We're on to an article on symphyseal pelvic dysfunction by the authors Aslan and Feintz. This was in the Current Opinion in Obstetrics and Gynecology in 2007. The authors note that symphyseal pelvic dysfunction is a condition which develops during pregnancy and may lead to significant morbidity affecting the quality of life. There are so many different terms for this condition. So just to name a few, pelvic insufficiency, symphysis pain syndrome, pelvic girdle relaxation, symptom giving pelvic girdle relaxation, pelvic joint syndrome, pelvic girdle pain, pubic symphysis dysfunction, and pelvic relaxation syndrome. So just a couple there. (laughs) And honestly, I haven't heard of all of them, so some of them are new. But rather than being a single phenomenon, symphysis pubic dysfunction, which is what we're probably more likely to have heard, probably represents a spectrum of musculoskeletal symptoms, which might be an explanation for all the different names that it's been called. It's important to distinguish between symphysis pubic dysfunction and diastasis of the pubic symphysis, which is DSP, where the joint has ruptured spontaneously, typically during a vaginal delivery. Diastasis of the pubic symphysis is much less common and requires imaging to appreciate the symphyseal separation. While diastasis pubic symphysis is relatively uncommon, a population-based Norwegian survey showed that pubic symphysis dysfunction was as common as 37.5%. Interestingly, a more recent study found no geographic differences among Finland, Sweden, and Tanzania in an overall similarity of localization and degree of pain, irrespective of the socioeconomic status of the countries reported. A study from the UK reported a prevalence rate of 1 in 36. So let's just review the anatomy surrounding the pubic bone. Those pubic bones meet each other in the median plane, where they form a cartilaginous joint, the pubic symphysis. They're connected by a superior pubic ligaments, which lie on the superior aspect of the pubis and extend as far as the pubic tubercles and the arcuate pubic ligaments on the lower borders of the symphyseal surfaces, blending with the intrapubic disc. The intrapubic disc connects the adjacent structures of the pubic bones. A thin layer of hyaline cartilage firmly joins the bone covering each of those surfaces. This junction isn't just a flat zone, it has ridges and depressions. The anatomy is meant to present a resistance to shearing forces. So on to etiology. The consensus is that the etiology is unknown. (laughs) It's often suggested that instability of the pelvic girdle is the primary cause of joint pain during pregnancy. So So those causes include things like instability from hormones such as relaxin, metabolic changes like calcium, biomechanical changes like the load of pregnancy, and anatomical and genetic variations. Now, remodeling of the pelvis appears to be a natural endocrine-induced response in the late second and third trimesters in order to facilitate that delivery of the fetus. The relationship between a relaxin and pregnancy-induced pelvic pain is pretty frequently questioned. Serum relaxin levels have been reported to be higher in patients with pelvic pain with the highest levels found in those patients with the greatest severity of pain. So that would make sense. 
Some studies refute that relationship, though. Many researchers think that this may be due to differences in study designs and the biochemical methods used to quantify those relaxin levels. So they're skeptical over maybe what markers or exact hormones that they're looking at for that. There's also opposing thoughts about the significance of the width of the symphysial gap in women diagnosed with pubic symphysis dysfunction. The average separation in the pubic symphysis in non-pregnant women is 5 millimeters or less. The measurement was found to vary between 1 to 12 millimeters in pregnancy. Pathological separation or diastasis of the pubic symphysis, which is seen much more rarely than pubic symphysis dysfunction, with an incidence of between 1 in 2,000 and 1 in 30,000 deliveries, has been referred to as a separation of greater than 10 millimeters. So this is not clear-cut. There's been a report showing that diastasis of the pubic symphysis might occur with a gap of 6 millimeters. There's also varying studies that show no correlation between symphysial separation and the level of disability and symptoms. So this might just imply that pubic symphysis dysfunction and pubic symphysis diastasis represent a spectrum or a varying degree of the same condition. It's also been suggested that low-grade inflammation may be present in those who are symptomatic. From a PT perspective, it's been suggested that the relaxation of the pelvic joints is not as clinically important in pubic symphysis dysfunction, rather the patient's muscular reaction to the deficient stability of the pelvic girdle. Pathological forms of this pubic symphysis dysfunction-related muscle spasm are thought to be related to calcium metabolism. One researcher measured sacroiliac stiffness in peripartum pelvic pain patients with Doppler imaging of vibration. They found that asymmetric stiffness in the sacroiliac joint seems to be more directly related to low back pain and pelvic pain, not the stiffness of the single sacroiliac joint. Therefore, patients with asymmetric or asynclitic conformation may be more symptomatic. Despite all of those hypotheses, the cause of pubic symphysis dysfunction remains unknown. The authors believe that with increased understanding of etiology and pathophysiology, there could be better diagnostic tools as well as prevention and management strategies for those who are really having this common problem. One thing they do know are some clinical risk factors of pubic symphysis dysfunction. The major clinical risk factor is malaparity, trauma to the pelvis or the back, family history of pelvic pain in mothers or sisters, pelvic pain in previous pregnancies, early menarche, lack of regular exercise, joint hypermobility, paid employment, macrosomia, post-term delivery, neonatal developmental hip dysplasia, and breastfeeding. This article then goes into common symptoms of pubic symphysis dysfunction during pregnancy. So symptoms that women experience include mild to severe pain in the pubic region, groin and medial aspect of the thigh, whether it's unilateral or bilateral, frequently accompanied by sacroiliac, low back, and suprapubic pain. The pain is worse during weight-bearing activities, particularly those that involve lifting one leg, such as walking or with hip abduction. There's also typically a clicking or a grinding sensation in the joint that is heard or felt, and there's often difficulty walking, that waddling style that we're really familiar with seeing. The mean time of the onset of symptoms in studies vary, some saying before 20 weeks of pregnancy, others around 26 weeks of pregnancy. Most cases of pubic symphysis dysfunction are mild and self-limiting. The majority of patients report symptom resolution within six months postpartum, with a quarter of those patients complaining of ongoing problems at four months. Regarding diagnosis, the diagnosis of pubic symphysis dysfunction is primarily based on medical history and clinical exam findings. 
Unfortunately, there isn't a current consensus on the diagnostic criteria for this. Therefore, this is a diagnosis based on exclusion of other musculoskeletal pregnancy-associated conditions. One study did try to develop a scoring system to diagnose pubic symphysis dysfunction. According to their findings, five symptoms might be significant to determine pubic symphysis dysfunction. So that's going to be pubic bone pain on walking, standing on one leg, climbing stairs, turning over in bed, and a previous damage to lumbosacral spine or pelvic regions. Imaging studies play a role in the measurement of separation of the pubic symphysis. Similar to the same message with MRIs that we often hear clinicians saying that you're not your MRI, this is the same for pubic symphysis dysfunction. There is found to be no correlation between the degree of symphyseal separation and the severity of those PSD symptoms. So what's the differential diagnosis for pubic symphysis dysfunction? We don't know. I'm just kidding, we do know that. Other things we need to rule out or in include things like nerve compression, so intervertebral disc lesions, symptomatic low back pain, pubico-osteolysis, osteitis pubis, bone infections, urinary tract infections, round ligament pain, femoral vein thrombosis, and obstetric complications. Management of pubic symphysis dysfunction has the goal of minimizing pain, informing the patient about their condition and the means to manage that condition, and then helping them continue to live a normal life. Now in our postpartum patients, we can use things like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or opiates, but not with our pregnant patients. TENS, heat and ice is noted in this article, as well as things like massage and acupuncture. Regular exercise may reduce the risk of having pubic symphysis dysfunction, but that doesn't really help our patients coming to see us with symptoms currently. Advice to patients should include a reduction in non-essential weight-bearing activities, avoiding movements including hip abduction, and avoiding standing on one leg. Using pelvic belts has been demonstrated to be important for the reduction of pain intensity and the ability to accomplish daily activities, and rigid belts tend to be more advised against elastic belts. I thought it was interesting that they noted that belts are less effective during pregnancy than they were noted to be post-delivery. Early induction of labor and elective C-sections is said to be helpful in reducing the intensity of pain associated with pubic symphysis dysfunction, and elective C-section is advocated to be considered in severe cases without firm evidence. Considerations during labor should include pain-free range of motion of the hips since that hyperabduction of the hip will really be limited by pain. For prevention, we discussed exercise on a regular basis, seeming to reduce the risk of getting that pubic symphysis dysfunction. So it might kind of be reasonable to recommend regular exercise in order to provide stability to the pelvis. Recurrence of symphyseal pain is commonly reported either with new pregnancy or related to menstruation. Recurrence rates have been estimated to be between 41 and 77%. Although I think it's worth noting that symptoms were reported as more severe in 79% with those who had a previous pregnancy. So what are our take-home points? Remember that pubic symphysis dysfunction can be influenced by changes in hormones and biomechanical changes such as weight gain and enlarging fetus, the descent of the fetus into the pelvis, and also by maternal factors like premorbidity, asymmetry of the pelvis, and changes in postural stance. Big picture, there's a lack of international consensus, so there isn't a solid basis to many practitioners in the diagnosis and treatment of this condition. Proper screening and better intrapartum management of high-risk patients would further improve overall management of this condition, especially that prevention piece. 
So next up on our study guide, we have an article by Boissonault in 2005 on osteoporosis during the childbearing years. I really love learning about those bone changes within lifespan, so this will touch base on a little bit more of that. So thank you for listening, everyone. I hope to see you all listening and joining me on our next article. Bye, everyone. Bye.